Well, I'm Palmer Kennedy. Um, I'm a junior high youth minister here and a uh, student over at the seminary over at Sanford's campus. And I'll be kicking off the series, Social Media and Your Youth, maybe? I don't know what the official title is. Social Media is what we're going to do. I think Cameron, Cole will probably teach one, maybe Mary Beth or Katie, but I'm starting the series off today. Um, and so if you don't like what I have to say about social media, you'll hear, hear two other opinions after this. Um, but today our topic is going to be facades of perfection and the gospel. And before I get going, I just want to say the reason we're talking about these things is not to terrify you parents, because some of the stuff I'll say probably will bother you, um, just in the sense of our kid, y'all's kids are going through some things that growing up y'all wouldn't have had to deal with. Um, and so there's a tendency when we give these social media talks to like almost like scare tactics, like, you know, burn their phones and, you know, destroy their laptops and all this stuff. And that's not really the goal. The goal this morning is really to just help you all understand as well as I can articulate it. I mean, I'm, I don't have kids. I just hang out with your kids and youth group. And so I have some observations and probably a different angle a vision than y'all do as parents. Um, and the goal is just to help y'all understand where your kids are at and maybe some of the struggles that they don't talk to y'all about or that because y'all aren't in youth ministry where maybe they feel a little freer to talk about certain things that they don't, you know, maybe y'all aren't aware of. And so today we're going to talk about the facades of perfection and the gospel. And again, the hope is really just to help y'all understand where they're at so that y'all can love them and parent them um, better. Um, not that y'all are doing a poor job. Obviously, I'm not a parent. I look 18. I understand that. And so uh, I've been married a year and a half. We do not have any kids yet. And um, so I am no expert here. Uh, I'm not going to give any parental tips because I don't feel like I have the right to do so. This is more just this is what we observe as a youth ministry. And these are some things that we think would be helpful for y'all going forward. And if y'all, if I'm blocking y'all, let me know if I need, because I can, is that any better? If I can fix that back? Hold on. It's a little sideways. Y'all are going to have to wait for me. Okay. Let's get started. So the facade of perfection, again, this idea that um, your kids use social media not all of them, but for the most part, and maybe some of you do. I know I do this. Use social media in such a way that we they put forth a self that they wish they were, or they put forth an image of themselves onto social media that they think will help them be liked by others. I mean, I, I looked at my own Facebook yesterday just to like critique myself on this, and I looked at there's a picture of me and my wife on our wedding day, and I was like, okay, that's sweet, whatever, that's nice. And then my cover photo on my Facebook is this picture of me mountain biking with my brother-in-law in Colorado with like this unbelievable landscape and we look so cool and I look at that I'm like wow I did exactly what I'm talking about our kids doing I picked the coolest picture I could find of myself I put it on Facebook hoping that somehow that might you know help others think oh man this Palmer guy must be an interesting or if nothing else he's adventurous you know I, I'm trying to promote myself and that's something that our kids are doing um, in any social media site that they do. And if y'all have them, y'all are probably guilty of it too. I mean, we just, as human beings, all try to promote this 
false self in hopes of gaining popularity or acceptance. Um, so Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat, there's other, you know, social media outlets. These are the primary ones. MySpace has kind of fallen off. That was popular when I was in middle school. These are, tend to be the ones that um, the kids are using. And again, they're just platforms. Obviously, you can use them in great ways. They can help you connect with old friends. They can do all sorts of things. But what we're dealing with today is the fact that our kids use them as platforms to create the person they wish they were or the person that they think would help them be more popular at school. And just as an anecdote, we literally have kids tell us that they'll go out on a Friday night. These are typically high schoolers. They'll get in their cars. They'll drive somewhere that looks exciting or cool, you know, with like brick with like moss growing on it, something kind of hip. They'll take a picture there and then they'll drive back home. They'll post it on social media and then they'll just spend the rest of the evening at home. And they do this because they're terrified of the idea that someone might know that they spent their Friday night alone with mom and dad at home. And like we hear these stories and it just like breaks our heart. We're like, oh my gosh, like there's no way you'll actually do this. And they're like, no, we, we do it all the time. They'll grab like two friends, they'll go stand out in front of the restaurant, take a picture and then they'll head back home just to make it look like they did something with their weekend, make it look like they're more exciting than they feel like they actually are. Um, and again, this is the harder part of the lesson. This is the really sad stuff. Um, photo editing apps, as an older, I have a younger sister, um, and so kind of watched her grow up. She's now married and up in Michigan, but watching her grow up dealing with um, so many insecurities and things, this one kills me. Um, so there's apps that our youth, you know, they use that help them look better um, in their photos, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or anything like that. They use all these apps that can adjust the way they are going to be perceived. And so one of them, you can remove pimples and blemishes, which for some of them, that's, you know, maybe that isn't such a terrible thing. Um, I know, like, I mean, shoot, we used it like on our wedding day. The wedding photographer is going to do that, do that sort of stuff. There's something like if I had like a little pimple, he would have somehow blotted it out. Well, our kids have access to that stuff. I mean, these things are unbelievable what they can do. But you can just sort of zoom in on the picture, click that little pimple, and you can just remove it. Poof, it's gone. And then you post it on Facebook or Instagram. So you can do that. You can change your complexion. Uh, you literally can like add makeup. Like you press one button and it'll like adjust your face in such a way that it looks like you're wearing makeup. And so if the person went out they didn't have makeup on, they don't like how they're looking, just one click, boom, they got makeup on their face. Um, makes them feel a little bit better about it. You change your complexion, skin tone, you can adjust the different filters, help you look tanner, help your clear, your skin look a little bit clearer. Um, there, are, there are apps that can change your body shape, literally make you look skinnier, make you look curvier, make you look whatever you want to look. You can adjust it with these apps. I know this sounds crazy, but technology can do this sort of stuff and the youth are using it. I mean, you can literally, and obviously it's no surprise here, think, I see that app and I'm thinking, okay, that, that's spring break pictures and that's when they typically use it. Somebody, they're in swimsuits or whatever and they can adjust things in such a way that helps them feel better about the way they look. These are apps that are out there. Whiten your teeth, you know, you're, you feel like your teeth a little bit yellow, you can just turn them into a Colgate commercial very, very quickly. Um, and so that's stuff that's available for them and it's stuff that they use because 
these things help them promote this image of themselves that they think is going to bring them more love and acceptance. Um, so, summary of the problem and the summary of what's going on with this facade of perfection. Um, social media gets used to promote a false self, a facade, a, a cooler, a better looking, a more exciting self. And again, all social media use is not towards this end. But a lot of it is. A lot of it is used to try to help them create this you know, other identity that they can put forth into the world for people to look at and say, oh my gosh, Palmer's just, you know, he's so exciting. He must mountain bike in the mountains all the time. He must fly to Colorado every weekend and do that, you know. It's something, again, we all do, but our, our kids especially because they spend so much time on social media, they are especially prone to using it in this way. Um, one of the big problems of, with this, and I think this is something that we didn't have to grow up with, but our kids do, is the results are quantifiable. Like, you can literally gauge how popular, or at least to their minds, how popular you are according to how many friends you have on Facebook, how many people follow you on Instagram, how many likes you got on this picture. Um, I mean, I, I have good friends my age. This isn't just, you know, the younger group, but I have kids my age who, if they put a picture up on Instagram and it gets less than 50 likes, they will remove it and then try another one to see if they can get more likes. And if that one works, it stays. You know, oh, I got 100 likes for this one. Okay, everyone liked it. This one stays. But I'm removing anything that has less than a certain number of likes because if somebody gets on my Facebook page and sees that I only got 20 likes for this picture on my birthday, they're going to think something about me that I don't want them thinking. So it's just this constant editing and maneuvering, trying to put forth this image of yourself that is more acceptable to others. Um, and like I said, number of friends, number of likes, it gives us this false sense of a quantifiable measure for how we're doing socially and how we're doing with our friends and um, whether or not we're someone worthy of love and acceptance. Alright, so why is this a big deal? I'm sure y'all have already picked up on the fact that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. Biggest one, it, it destroys relationships. Um, it creates insecurity because you constantly are maneuvering this creation that you've made in such a way that others will love and accept it and you're never actually putting your true self forward. Um, so it contributes to the insecurity, self-loathing, depression, anxiety, and loneliness that are already so heavily felt by our teens. And again, y'all can relate to this. All y'all have went through middle school, you went through high school, you know, and y'all are human beings, you know, this is stuff we still deal with, but it's especially acute at that age. These are things that are already going to be going on in their lives because it's just part of growing up in social media and the this idea of putting forth my best self just contributes to these problems that they're having to deal with. And I wrote down what is basically the basic progression of what happens. So the idea is we're terrified of letting the real us be seen, so we cover it up as best we can and we promote a facade. And while this may in fact bring popularity, because it does, I mean you put forth the right pictures, the right image of yourself, you're going to get likes, people are going to start following you on Instagram, 
and you have all these quantifiable measures of saying, okay, I'm like, I'm doing better than I used to be. And so it might bring forth popularity, but there's a big problem with this because the love and acceptance we gain is never actually love and acceptance of the true us. It's always love and acceptance of this false us. And as much as we do that, we're never actually going to be able to convince ourselves that this person is us. We're constantly going to be reminding ourselves, okay, they love this little image I've built, but would they actually love me? Would they love me with the pimples? Would they love me without all the adjustment that I made on the pictures? Would they love the me that didn't go out Friday night? And they never get an answer for that question because they keep putting forth this image and it just keeps the cycle going. Um, and so we never feel loved because deep down we know that the person being loved isn't actually us. It'd be like having a twin and everybody likes your twin, but not you. There's this constant sense of like, okay, there's this thing that everyone else loves, but I don't actually feel loved because no one actually notices the true me. They're all just noticing this thing that kind of looks a lot like me. Um, and then the other huge problem, and this is another reason it um, destroys relationships, is when we feel like we need to do this, create this image for people to love us, we start expecting other people to do the same thing. And so we not because we don't feel like we can be loved with our pimples and our blemishes and our problems, we are not willing or don't feel like it's needed to love others with their pimples and their insecurities and their problems. And so we start to also exalt the false selves that our friends make rather than their true selves. And so it just turns into this cycle of everyone's trying to outdo one another with their false selves and no one is really putting forth who they really truly are and because of that no one is feeling truly loved or accepted for who they are um, and so again this is just something this is something everyone deals with social media is just a platform that this gets played out on these are just symptoms of deeper human problems that we all have and it just so happens that our teens have this ready-built system where it can play out they have a ball field they can go let all these you know, let the disease go show all of its symptoms on. Um, and so there's a bigger problem at stake, and they're both the result of the fall. And so it's something that we all deal with. It doesn't, you know, you can be 80 years old, and these are still things that you're going to have to wrestle with because of the fall. And so, again, they just have a more obvious outlet. So one of the problems, one of the big issues here, because I, I think that the issues are twofold. One of them is we don't understand or readily accept unconditional love it's something as human beings that we struggle with because of the fall it's just something like God's unconditional love is something that we will spend our whole lives wrestling with and trying to accept and then often running from it and then trying to accept it's just a struggle that all human beings deal with and this leads to hiding our true selves and I don't know about y'all but I, I do this like with my wife like I don't want her to know like if I if I've done something that I know you know, she would be really disappointed if I did it, or she'd be really upset if she knew that I broke that. Oh, here's a great example. This is like a month or two ago. I dropped a uh, a cup in our kitchen, and she was like off in the bedroom, and it just shattered. And I was like, okay, we have enough cups. She'll never know that this happened. And so I just gathered all the pieces, threw them all in the trash, and was like, she can't know. Because one of the things that I know I am, and I didn't know this until I got married, I'm very clumsy. I break things. 
I knock things over. I have poor, you know, spatial awareness. Like, it'll be a miracle if I don't knock this over by the time this talk is done. And I hate that about myself. And so the fact that I dropped this cup and my wife doesn't necessarily have to know about it means I'm going to hide it. Even though I know my wife, she would love me through it, but I, for some reason, think that she'll love me less if she knows I broke the cup. And so we do this with our spouses, we do this with our parents, we do this ultimately with God, and that's where it all flows out of. So we all have a hard time accepting unconditional love. Two, because we have a hard time accepting unconditional love, we seek to earn it. We seek to prove ourselves. Again, using the example with my wife, she walks into the kitchen, kitchen's clean, there's no broken cup. I've earned it. You know, I've done the dishes and I didn't break anything. So, boom, I'm a good husband. You know, I deserve her love now. And we do this with God. You know, God, I've, I'm a faithful church attendee. I said all my prayers this week. You owe me your love. I'm now worthy of it. Right? We all, we all do this. It doesn't matter what age you're at. It just, social media is a platform for the kids to do it. And because we seek to earn it, it leads to desperate attempts to earn love. For example, we try to produce a fake self, a false self. We use all these apps to make us look different than we actually look. We only put the pictures on Facebook or Instagram that are going to promote this image of ourselves. We'll never put up that picture of us, you know, before we put our makeup on and had our hair done. Or for the guys, we'll never put the picture up in that sports game where we got embarrassed. Like, we're only going to show the one of us scoring a touchdown. Like, that's just how it works. Um, and so those are the two issues. We have a hard time with unconditional love. And because of that, we try to earn it. And that's something every human being deals with. Um, and it's just, it's just more obvious looking at social media in our teens. As the older you get, the better you get at hiding it. You know, this is something we all deal with. It's just, we watch our kids and it just becomes very clear that this is something they're dealing with. Um, so scripture, let's, we're gonna go to scripture. Obviously, we, uh, think that's the source of true authority here. And so, what does scripture have to say about this? I mean, it's all fine and well for me to, talk about what my observations are, but we're going to try to ground this in some um, deeper truth. So Genesis 3, 1-13, um, for anyone who's been around a while, Genesis 3 is, what happens in Genesis 3? Anybody have any ideas? The fall, yes, the fall. Things go bad. You know, humanity lasted two chapters, doing things well, and then things start heading downhill. That's very telling about us, isn't it? Um, so I'm a, we'll, we'll just kind of read this together. I'll read it and y'all can follow along here. If you have a Bible, use it. I kind of figured it would just be up here. Can y'all see this? I don't want to. All right, I'll try to. I'll try to articulate it very well. All right. So now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden?" And the woman said to the serpent, "We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree." that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to gave to be my wife, no, gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Okay, so this, you know, this is something that we're taught ad nauseum growing up. The fall, the story of us eating of the fruit of the tree. And what I want you to see here is before this happens, how's, how's their relationship with God? What's it look like? Adam and Eve. What, what does it look like for them and God? Pure. pure. Yes, it's pure. How are they comfortable, uncomfortable in his presence? How, what's, what's their interaction with him look like? They're comfortable, completely trusting. I mean, in, in Genesis 2, it says they were naked and not ashamed. They were completely vulnerable before one another and before God, and there was no shame. There was no worry of, ooh, I hope you know this person accepts me. There was just this, like I like your word, purity to it. Um, their relationship with God was perfect. Their relationship with one another was perfect. Anyone who's married, look, married looks at them like, oh, that must have been nice for that little while that it lasted. You know, a perfect marriage no fighting no frustrations no insecurities and yet they eat and so they bring sin enters the world and when god approaches them what do they do they hide right they try to cover up their nakedness and then they hide from him why why do you think they do this shame they're shame so they're hiding because they're ashamed. And with that shame because it comes this sense of this God no longer loves me and accepts me as I am. I need to hide from Him. I can't show my true self to Him because if I do, surely He's going to reject me. And I, I can't deal with that. And so I'm going to hide who I truly am, which obviously we know is a very futile thing to do. God's, you're not hiding from God. I mean, when God calls out, where are you, Adam? He's not actually wondering. It's more a call for him to come back. And I really think that that question, where are you, is something that God is asking for the rest of the narrative of Scripture. Where are you? Come back to me. And so this is the root. This is, this is what we all deal with. This is what our teens are dealing with. Because of sin, shame and guilt and this feeling of unworthiness is written on our hearts. It's something that we all have to wrestle with. And it, again, starts with our relationship with God. And then everything else just flows from it. I mean, the fact that they can't feel perfectly loved by their parents or by their friends is because ultimately they don't have this strong foundation of being unconditionally loved by God. And so another scripture. And that dealt, so that dealt with the first symptom. We hide. We're scared of showing our true selves. We don't understand unconditional love. It's something we reject and we push back against because we feel ourselves too unworthy for it. And so the second thing we do, we strive. Because we don't feel worthy, we try to earn it. And I thought this was a great example of that. Um, in Luke 18, Jesus is telling a parable. And he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisee here is doing what we do, which is he's bringing his resume to God. He's saying, hey, I give all that I, I give tithes. You know, I'm following all the rules. So surely you owe me your love and your acceptance and your favor now. You're, you know, I have no concept for unconditional love. It's something I have to earn. And here I am. I've earned it. So please give it to me. It's this constant striving. And what we see here is that Christ is saying that's, that's not it. Like that's not what I've asked for. That's not religion. I want you to come to me vulnerable, broken. The tax collector has no resume. In fact, if he brought it, you know, if tax collectors back then, it would have been the lowest of the low as far as social standing goes. He comes and says, I'm a sinner. He's vulnerable. He opens up and says, look, this is me. Please just have mercy on me. And Christ responds and said, that is pleasing to the Father. That is true religion. That man left justified, not the one who tried to earn his way. And so, here's another one that deals with striving. Again, the Pharisees are just a beautiful picture of every single one of us. We all do this. It says, After this, he went out, he being Jesus, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Again, what, these guys aren't worthy of you. Okay, Do you know who they are? These are like the scum of this world. Why are you eating with them? They're not worthy. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have, come to, I have, come to call, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And what Jesus is saying there is, if you think you're well, you don't understand how this works. If you don't think you're sick, you're not going to go to the doctor. If you don't think you're a sinner, you're not going to repent. Jesus is saying, it's the sinners. It's these tax collectors. These people who know that they're the scum of the earth. The people who know that they're sinners. The people who know that they have nothing to bring to earn Christ's love. These are the guys who go to the physician and are made well. These are the guys who are granted redemption and repentance. And so we have here true religion. This is what, this is like a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's our sickness and his willingness to heal. It's our sinfulness and his willingness to bring redemption to us. And again, the Pharisees are the ones who are striving. The tax collectors are being vulnerable and they're saying, hey, this is me. This is the true me. I have no facade. I have nothing to offer. Please just have mercy on me. And Christ says, that man came back justified. Um, so the gospel. So how do we deal with this? You know, so far it's been bad news, okay? All of you in this room, me, and all of your children are fallen. 
Okay, they have a hard time with unconditional love. We have a hard time with unconditional love. They strive to earn love. We strive to earn love. Okay, there's the bad news. And, and again, we have to recognize that if we want any hope. If we were going to understand the gospel, we have to know that we're the sick, we're the sinners, we are the ones who need God to redeem us somehow. And so I love this quote from Tim Keller. Um, I probably use it like every other week in my Sunday school lessons because it's just such a beautiful summary of the gospel. It says, The gospel is this, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And so he's saying, if you think you have a grip on your sinfulness, it's even worse than you think. If you think you know, you have these problems, guess what? It's actually even worse than you have any idea. But at the same time, despite that, you're also way more loved than you will ever, than you've ever dared to hope for. Despite all this junk, you are far more loved than you've ever dared to dream. And I think a beautiful picture of this, just very briefly, is Romans 5.8. There it says, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still just rebelling against Him, living in sin, completely unworthy of love, Christ died for us. And This, again, is a beautiful picture of what Keller's talking about here. We didn't do anything that prompted Christ to come. It's not like He was like, oh, you know what, those guys really aren't that bad. I think I'll go save them. It wasn't, you know what, they're trying pretty hard. I think I'll go show my love for them. It was, okay, they are so hopelessly sinful I'm going to show them what unconditional love looks like. And so while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, we're more sinful than we're willing to look at, but we're also more loved than we're willing to dream. And again, the same passage from Luke 5. Those who are sick are the ones in need of the physician. Those who are sinful are the ones in need of repentance. And anyone who doesn't recognize their sinfulness or their sickness is fooling themselves. And they're going to end up like the Pharisees trying to bring their resume to God and earn something from Him. And so in summary, God loves and in Christ accepts the true you. Warts and all. He hasn't, you know, said, okay, I really like this part of you and I'm just going to ignore the rest of it. He sees all of it. There's nowhere we can hide from Him. There's nothing that we've done behind closed doors that He doesn't know about. There's no thought that we have that he hasn't seen and he knows it all which i mean if we're honest with ourselves is terrifying i mean like the idea that he's read all of my thoughts is a very frightening thing you know while i'm driving home on 280 and somebody cuts me off the fact that god sees what went through my mind with regards to that person is astounding and yet he loves me warts and all he doesn't try to make this facade and say, I love that thing. Be more like that. He says, I love you as you are. All of it. I see all of it and I love it. Obviously, there's, you know, we have to balance this with a movement toward holiness. He doesn't want you to stay as you are. He wants to, by His Holy Spirit, grow you into the likeness of Christ. But as far as His loving and ex- His love and acceptance of you, that's, that's done. That's sealed. Holy Spirit has signed off on that one. Alright? It's un- an unconditional love. And so, what do we do? We talked about what's going on with our kids. We talked about the results of the fall and we talked about the gospel. 
as parents, as a youth minister, what do we do with this? Um, Because I don't know about you, but when I first read about the apps and what our kids are doing on social media, I mean, and I I talked with Katie Carroll about this, one of the other youth ministers we have. It's so easy for us to just think that the apocalypse is here. There is no hope for our kids. And I mean, like, it's just over. Like, there's no way they're going to survive. Right. And the gospel has no room for that sort of hopelessness. Like there is hope here. And so what are we as parents to do? I think the first thing is dealing with our own hearts. All right. If we try to attack our kids with the gospel and speak truth into their social media use and we have not understood it ourselves, it is not going to work. Like if you approach your kid and say, hey, X, Y, and Z, here's the gospel into your social media, and yet your interactions with your spouse don't reflect that. Like, if your reactions with your spouse reflect a false gospel which says, I'm only going to love you on the condition that you do X, Y, and Z, the the kids see that. I mean, they do. In the same way that growing up, if you're watching your parent and you figure out, okay, My dad only gets excited about me when I bring home an A on my report card or when I, you know, score the game winning basket in the basketball game or when I won this pageant or won this thing. When we observe that, the gospel just gets blurrier. I mean, our marriages are meant to be a reflection of Christ in the church. They're meant to preach the gospel to the world the same way parenting is meant to be a reflection of the father's love towards his children. And when there's a disconnect there, and let's be real, there's always going to be something wrong. We're not perfect. I'm not a perfect spouse. None of y'all are perfect spouses. No one's going to be a perfect parent. There's going to be problems there. But if we can't at least deal with our own hearts here, then there's no way our kids are going to get it. And so we have to do some self-examination of our own. Because, I mean, the upside of this is when your kid sees you forgive your spouse and love them unconditionally, you're preaching the gospel to them. When your kid screws up and you show them unconditional love, obviously not minimizing where they've messed up, but loving them in spite of it, you're preaching the gospel to them. I mean, there's, there's, there's a need, yes, there's a need to teach the kids about the gospel. They need to hear the narrative of scripture. They need to know, you know, what Jesus has to say about thing, these things, what the gospel really is. But you're also teaching them this concept every time you love your spouse unconditionally, every time you love them unconditionally. And the more we do that, the more we're teaching them, hey, there is such a thing as unconditional love. There is such a thing as a gospel that says, despite all your screw-ups, there's the possibility of being loved and accepted. And so I think that's the best way that we can deal with it. We love our families in a way that reflects the gospel. When they screw up, you know, when they lie to you and go to an R-rated movie, or they go to this party that they weren't supposed to go to, or they come home drunk, you know, Whatever happens, I think there's two mistakes we can make. One, we remove our love and acceptance, and we teach them every time you screw up, you have less love. Or we could say, I love you, and we're just going to ignore what just happened. Because what that teaches them is, okay, they love the perfect me, 
and they're not even going to address what went on. And so really they're just loving this false self again. Instead, what, what we have to do is love them and point out the wretchedness. I mean, they're all little wretches the same way we are. They are. Y'all know that. Y'all have kids. Y'all know it way better than I do. Anyone who I, I love thinking about, I, I have a lot of teachers at Beeson who teach this sort of stuff. They're like, if you don't believe in sinfulness, just have a kid. Like, just hey, watch them. You know, watch what they do, and you'll start buying into it. And you know, we have to recognize their sinfulness, point it out, not ignore it, and then love them in it, warts and all, all of it, loving their whole self, not the self that you know brings the A on the report card. And also not the self that we just ignore, you know, like, well, let's, we're not even going to address the fact that, you know, you stole liquor out of the liquor cabinet. We're just not even going to deal with that. I'm just going to love the good things about you and ignore that. Because again, both of those things start creating this false self and this false understanding of what unconditional love is. Um, and so we love them despite all their problems. And we love our spouses. We love our children. We love our own parents. We interact with others in a way that reflects this. And I mean, it's astounding how observant they are. Like, if I'm teaching the gospel to the youth group, and I've like forgotten one of the kids' names, that kid is not going to pay attention. I had it happen to me. We were sitting in there, and this kid hadn't been here in a while, and I kept he kept asking questions, and so I kept like saying, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. answer it. You know, <laughs> you <laughs> answer it." And he literally just went. Palmer, do you know my name? And I, uh, I just like wanted to melt and like go hide behind the screen or something. It was terrible. And I had to tell him, I, I'm sorry. No, I don't. And you know, he tells me his name, and that kid is checked out. He is not going to listen to my message of a father who knows everything about you and loves you dearly. I mean, I like I have to live this out. If I'm not caring, for, if I'm only hanging out with the popular kids at youth group and not caring for the social outcast, I'm communicating to them, these are the kids worthy of love, these are the kids who aren't. You need to be more like them. And it works in all of our, all of our interactions, have an opportunity to preach the gospel to our kids. Um, and so I think that's something very valuable, something we need to keep in mind when we, you know, when you have a clumsy spouse who drops the cup in the kitchen and you actually catch him, you know, like, yes, address the problem, address the, the fact that he's careless and clumsy and, you know, needs to be more careful, but then you love, you love him through it, as, again, my wife does, she's wonderful, um, but I'm glad she didn't notice that. So, final word, um, because, again, I think these, these kind of talks can be terrifying sometimes when you hear about all the things that our kids are into. Um, as if it's so different from things that we were into. I mean, it's, it's really not. It's just different things. Um, uh, my final point is God loves these kids far more than you do. And this is important. It's something we have a really hard time with. Um, it's something that we don't really think about very often. But he does. He loves these kids way more than any one of y'all can even... You know, you might think you're the greatest parent in the world. He loves them way better. Compared to him, you're a total screw-up. I mean, he is the perfect father. We're not. And the reason this is important is you are never going to be able to protect your kid from everything. You're not going to. You are never going to fix all their problems. You are never going to correct all this stuff that the 
you know, this facade of perfection creates. Certainly, you can speak into it. You can point them to truth. You can love them in such a way that communicates the gospel to them. But if you're going to rely on your own strength to overcome all the crap that they're going to have to go through, you're fighting a losing battle. Like, you're not going to be able to do it completely. And that, from a secular perspective, leads to hopelessness. You know, like, there's no way. It's just hopeless. Why have kids? You're just going to, it's all going to go to crap anyway, if you're going to look at it from that perspective. But from a Christian perspective, we have a God who calls himself our Heavenly Father, who calls himself your kid's Heavenly Father. He's not just your Heavenly Father. He's their Heavenly Father. He runs the whole universe. He's sovereign over all of it. He sees all your kids' stuff. He knows about it. And he loves them more than you do. He also knows what's good for them in a way that, because of our own finite minds, you're never going to be able to understand. He sees the end game. He sees what he's slowly doing in their lives because of all these circumstances. And he's moving them towards himself. And I think if we can rest in that, it gives us hope as parents. I mean, we can do our best, but ultimately, probably the best thing we can do as parents is pray. And say, God, I can't do this, but I know you care for my kid more than I do. I know that you have more control over life circumstances than I do. And so, you know what? I, I'm going to trust my kid to you. And he is faithful. He's faithful to take care of his kids. He's not going to leave them out to dry. He's with them in school when you're not. He's with them at practice when you're not. He's with them at the party when you're not. He's with them while they're driving the car when you're not. He has an ability to care for them in a way that y'all can't. And I think if we can't grasp that, it's going to be a very stressful thing thinking that we have to be the ones to correct all these issues that are being brought up by social media and the million other things that middle and high school brings upon your children. Um, and so my encouragement is, you know, preach the gospel to your kids. Um, live the gospel before your kids. Be aware that they're dealing with this facade, that they are constantly putting forth their best self, hoping for acceptance. Encounter that. Attack that with love. Attack that with the gospel and the way you love them and the way you interact with others and with truth. And then, over all of that, trust that God loves them more than you do and cares about them more than you do and is in control over things in a way that we can never be. And that ultimately... Their lives are in His hands, and those are the best hands that they could ever be in. And that's all I have. According to my clock, it's 10.50. If y'all have any questions for me and my like absurdly limited knowledge about raising children, I welcome them. Um, otherwise, y'all are welcome to go. But if you have any questions, I'd be happy to address them. Again, I, we hang out with your kids at youth group, and so we may see some things that maybe y'all don't get to. Yes? Another quick comment. Of course. I was saying how um, in high school we had one phone in our house mm-hmm. and um, it, w- it had a cord on it. I mean, it's 2000. Yeah. And it was like, if my high sc- I was 18 years old talking to my high school boyfriend at the kitchen table. Yeah. And, you know, my parents would say things like, oh, we can't afford a phone in your room. Mm-hmm. I didn't know there were like $18, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's this part of, you know, um, accountability. Yeah. Children, yeah. It, when when I, I was 21 years old when they handed me my cell phone bill and like, hey, this is yours, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that that um 
every text message was not on the bill because that's what my mom had told me. That yeah, that was smart. <laughs> nice. And then when I started paying my own bill, I was like, that was a lie. But um, all that to say, like, accountability is so important. Yeah. And when you think, or when you when you believe that other people can see you, uh huh, you don't. Mm-hmm. And I know that's more tangible than what you were talking about. Oh, of course. About. Yeah, yeah, no, that's important, though. And, and I don't know how that looks yet on social media, other than following the children. And yeah, y'all have a great day. Thank you. But making them accountable and being like, people can see this. Yeah. I can hear you. Yeah. Even if it's a lie. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and to that, I mean, there are innumerable ways to bring that sort of accountability. Um, I mean, I can tell you, and this is on the rise for girls, but I mean, if you have a boy who has a laptop and a smartphone and you're not somehow monitoring his use, I mean, uh, I, you know, if we're going to go with statistics, it's very likely he's being exposed to some form of, you know, illicit material, whether it's pornography or um, something else. I mean, there does, again, every parent's got to understand their child, know how responsible they can be and what they can understand. but. I, I would tell you from my observation and just stats, if there is no accountability anywhere and they have free reign of internet use, and again, I'm talking about mainly boys here, but it's on the rise with girls. It's not something girls are immune to. I mean, it's it's there too, but it's 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 a big thing with boys especially. I, I mean, there's so many different ways you can filter that and, and, and monitor it. There's a number of different um, softwares you can put on laptops phones, all sorts of stuff that honestly you'd have to talk to probably Gil Cracky or somebody else who probably has um, more information on that. But I would tell you, I mean, it, it's it's kind of ignorant to think if you're going to give him them this much freedom and access to the internet that there's not going to be any exposure um, unless there's accountability. Because it, here's the crazy thing, like Facebook, Facebook knows the gender of your kid and puts ads on the sides of Facebook that it knows are going to appeal to your kid. Like, it's astounding how easy it is. Even if the kid doesn't get online thinking, okay, I'm going to look up something terrible, if they get on Facebook, it, it, you know, there's access, there's outlets very quickly. You just start, oh, she's very pretty, click, you know, and then it's off. And so, yeah, I, w- I would encourage you all to look into some form of accountability if it's not there, especially once they start getting older. Because, um, I mean, it's just... Y'all might have the kid who doesn't deal with it, but statistically, it, it is a huge problem. Um, any other questions? Okay. Let me pray for y'all really quick. Um, Father, I thank you uh, for the gift of children. I thank you for um, blessing us with them. I, I pray that you would um, guide these parents in this room. Um Give them hope and um, encouragement. I I pray that you would give them wisdom in their interactions with their children. Um, Help them to love them unconditionally in a way that reflects your gospel and that does not um, ignore all of the problems that are there. Uh, I pray that that you would give them unity in their marriage, um, that uh, the marriages in this room would reflect the gospel, that um, it would reflect your love for your church. And... um, Above all, Lord, I pray that you would comfort these parents with the good news that um, you're in control and they're not. Uh, That you um, are the one who brought these children into existence and you're the one who loves them far more than they do. And that you are the one who is ultimately their protector and provider. Um, So, Lord, please give them hope and um, just bless them in this task that you've set before them of raising uh, children 
into the maturity of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.